Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. In this episode, we listen to Marguerite Mishkin describe her tale of survival in Nazi-occupied Belgium during World War II. Born in May 1941, her mother left Marguerite and her sister with a Catholic family during the war. After the war ended, she was placed in a Jewish orphanage in Belgium and adopted by a family in Chicago in 1949. This podcast talks about Nazi occupation of Germany and the Jewish Holocaust. It may not be suitable for younger or sensitive listeners. Before I begin telling you my story, I always you know, give an introduction. Um, one, I tell my story because I have a message. And for me, that is the most important thing, the message. Yes, I want you to remember my story because, you know, it's hard to do this. It might not seem like it is because, uh, you know, I've been doing it, but it is, trust me. And secondly, I try to involve you. Now, by you, I mean the young people. You know, if I was only talking to adults, you would hear a completely different speech, okay? So, uh, and you see, I will involve you somewhat. Obviously, you didn't live the history, but you'll see how. And thirdly, I realize that this is a very, very, very serious subject, but I try to put some humor in it. It's not going to be the kind of humor that when you tell each other jokes or you watch a funny movie or something like that. But there will be times there's actually a story in there, a true story, which you kind of will smile, I hope. Uh, anyway, having said that, let me begin my story. My story begins, as all stories do, with my biological parents. And I purposely use that word. My biological parents were born in Poland in the early 1900s. My mother's family moved to Poland in 1921, and my father's family moved to Poland in 1929. I have Absolutely no way of knowing if my parents knew each other in Poland. So one of the things I say to all of you who are fortunate enough to have parents and grandparents, and you really are the very, very first generation to have great-grandparents, some of you, I understand, <coughs> ask them their history. You know, it's today, you know, there's even a show on, who are you, you know? I mean, everybody wants to know. Ask, because I don't want to make you sad, they're not always going to be around. And begin with the oldest generation, the great-grandparents, and then, you know, work this way. And, you know, you don't want to know facts. In other words, yeah, you want to know when they were born and were, but you want to know details. Those are the things I can never find out, stories. How did they meet? You know, things like that, you know. That's what you want to know, way more. The facts you can get any place, you know. It's the other things, it's the interesting things that you want to know. I could never find out, but as a wonderful friend of mine says, you only need a few brain cells working, that even if they did not meet in Poland, and we don't know, they certainly had to have done met in Belgium, because they get married in 1939, the year the war breaks out. So I am not even a gleam in their eyes when the war breaks out. They then moved to France, where my older sister Annette is born. 
Uh, my father was in a labor camp in France. Uh, they, that I, my mother, I know, moved back to Belgium because I was born in Belgium, and you know, you, you, you're born where your mother is. Maybe not your father, but certainly your mother. Uh, but I also know my father was taken from Belgium, so my guess is they both moved back. And the very next thing, oh, I was born in uh, in May of 1941. So, anybody want to quickly do the math? Since we have time, I don't usually, after fifth grade, I don't allow them to do it. But anyone want to figure out how old I am? Nine. Quickly. Very good, 69. So you could have said 70 and I wouldn't have argued, by the way. <laughs> Although, you know, you want to be there. Anyway, uh, you, the adults know what I'm talking. You're, at their age, you're 12 and a half, you know. Anyway, uh, the very next thing we know is that on Halloween day, on October 31st, 1942, my father is put on a transport to Auschwitz. And I assume you all know Auschwitz because I heard your teacher say you've talked about the camps. Now, there is only one story that has ever, ever come down to me about my father. I have no idea who told it to me. My sister didn't know it till I told it to her. Uh, I didn't make it up. One, my imagination isn't that good. And secondly, for me, it is an embarrassing and humiliating story. Now, you're at the age where your parents sometimes do things that embarrass you. Right? Yeah, I know. You're at that age. But you also know one day, and by the way, I know you don't believe me because you're wonderful human beings. You do things that embarrass them. You're too good for that, I know. But anyway, you don't do it purposely, they don't do it purposely. But if I, were, if I was to ask you about your parents, you wouldn't tell me those things. You might tell your friend or something, but you certainly wouldn't tell me. So why do I tell you this story? Because if I do not, my father is a stick baby. And that's not fair. He lived. He was flesh and blood. But even more importantly, it goes along with my message. And this is the way the story goes. That on the transport my father was on, people decided to escape, to jump off. And that's true. You could look that up in a history book. And in the process of jumping off, and my father jumped off also. In the process of jumping off, his glasses broke. Now, you know, I heard you tell a few minutes ago that you had discussed certain things. By the way, uh, you know, one of the myths of the Holocaust is that people did not resist. And as you say, 66 years ago, and the further back it goes, the more people are going to say, why didn't they fight back? You're going to say... Look what happened in Egypt right now. You know, they gather. You have to realize that, I mean, I don't know if you know this. I heard it on the news. I'm going to assume it's correct. That the person who did that in Egypt first of all, worked for Google. He had the internet. There was no such thing as the internet in the 40s. I mean, it was a completely different world. You know, I saw some of you had cell phones. In those days, you were lucky to have a party line. You didn't have individual phones in your house where, you know, I could call you up and say, you better get out because he could hear me and he might then report you and me. 
That's where the party line is. And many people didn't even have phones. So you have to realize it's not that people didn't fight back. It was just much more difficult. You cannot take what's happening in uh, 2011 to what happened in 1939 and 1940. It doesn't work. But people did resist the best way that they could. Jumping off that transport was a way of resistance. And you know, the other thing, which, because I, I was telling this to a neighbor of mine, that you have to realize is, it was easy for the people in Egypt. I'm not saying that they weren't scared. The public was with them. The public was not with the Jews in the 1930s and 40s. So it's not like you were gonna get all that help. You know, very unlikely. If anything, they'd report you. But anyway, so my father jumped off that transport. And if I had been omnipresent at that moment, I'd want to yell at him. I'd want to say to him, whatever you do, don't go back on that transport, because your chances of survival at Auschwitz are slim to none. Now, his chances of that transport were not great, because if they had been, you would not have had six million Jews murdered and five million other people. We will get back to those numbers later on, but they were greater. I assume you've all heard of Anne Frank. She survived as long as she did because people helped her. I survived because somebody helped. So yes, they were greater. So off that transport, he might have had a chance. We'll never know. But he goes back on that transport. And so my message to you is sometimes you have to think of the other person. Because he knew that without his glasses, he was at a tremendous disadvantage. And, you know, when you're running away from somebody, every second counts. And he, he wanted to at least give the other people the best chance possible. And you can't ask me later on because I have no idea what happened. But he goes back on that transport, and that transport reaches Auschwitz on November 3rd, 1942, and less than a month after he's been at Auschwitz, on November 28th, 1942, he perishes. I don't like to use the word die, because to me, death is natural. And he did not die naturally, so he perished. So he no longer exists. And this is a picture of my biological father. Now, that left my mother with two very little girls still in diapers. What was she going to do to save their lives? At this point, I want I just need a show of hands. How many of you have a pet? Wonderful. Now, you know, I don't know if you know this. I actually just got a phone call from my local police station. You know Illinois is broke. You know that. So, and you know we had this horrendous snowstorm, which took a lot of money. They were even trying to get money from the federal government. Illinois is, one of the laws in Wisconsin, one of the laws Illinois is passing is uh, that anyone that lives in Illinois cannot have a pet. And so and you will be getting calls from your local police station to tell you to bring your pet to the local police station, and they promise to relocate them. They won't hurt them. They'll relocate them, maybe in Wisconsin, because now all those people are on jobs. They can take care of the pets. Uh, 
First of all, he believes that they won't hurt him. Depends on how much you trust your uh, local police. <laughs> what are you going to do? The ones of you who have pets, what are you going to do? Go hide for them. Hide them. Yeah, but how? In the, in the attic. Everybody now knows you have a pet. And let me tell you, I, uh, they're going to give me some money. And I just did my income tax. I need that money. I'm going to report you. Trust me, any answer you give me, I'm going to fight you back, okay? Well, you're going to give it to someone that... How are you going to... Okay, good. But how are you going to find someone? No, no, you, I'm going to give it to someone that nobody knows that have my... Pay. How are you going to find that person? Yeah, but how are you oh. going to find that person? Uh, maybe in a different place. I'll send it to my cousin in California. <laughs> <laughs> how are you going to get it there? UPS. UPS, yeah. Did you hear about the person that tried to mail a dog, but they called it? That's a true yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. How can you mail a dog? <laughs> Look, I, I, as I say, I'm trying to involve these young people. I want them, this is, uh, this is the feel I want them to get. What would you do? I mean, I got a pet three years ago. Love of my life. I'm not sure I could give them up. The one thing I'm surprised is that nobody said they would move. But I would have argued with you there, too. I would have said, what happens if nobody, you know, because that's one of the big things. Why didn't they move? Not that easy to move. And somebody has to be willing to take you. Look, Illinois isn't, that's why I needed to know where they came from. You know, you're the one that wooed it all. I was going to say, North, not really, I was going to say North Side, but then I heard you were from Naperville, so that wouldn't have worked. But look, Illinois isn't passing that law. But I just want, you, you know, none of, I mean, the adults can figure out they have kids, you know, they, what, would, what they would do. But you don't have kids, I want you to get that emotion. What would you do? I mean, I don't know if I could give up my little sucker. That's what I call him. His name is Chico, by the way. Anyway, my mother had to make that decision. And, you know, the same way I asked you, uh, how would you find somebody that would take your pet? But I teasingly always say, my mother could not put an ad in the newspaper saying, who wants my cute, to my, <laughs> who wants my two cute little Jewish girls? Because you know that they're reading the newspaper the same way as Illinois passed that law. Usually I just give the, uh, the name of this, you know, this community I'm in, but this was, there were too many, you know, I had to say Illinois. And I've had people believe me, by the way. It's the most amazing things when the kids believe you and they look shocked. <laughs> anyway, um, and she could, you know, uh, anyway, she couldn't put an ad in the newspaper saying, and I know, I know, you think I'm not. Very cute, but that's because I grew up. Here's a picture of my sister and me as children. I'm going to give you two very good clues, but one good clue. One is a tease. One on the cuter one. So now you get into trouble if you get the wrong person, of course. And secondly, you are going to get the wrong person. You're the color one. Hey, good for her. She took my hand. Uh, she's right. I am, I'm standing on something. I was never taller than my sister. But I am standing on something. Now, it 
was very, very, very fortunate that I lived in Belgium because Belgium decided to help hide the children. And they did very well. And, you know, I've been asked, did you have to be born there? No, I know people who moved to Belgium. I, I know them then, I know them now. And as long as you lived in Belgium and you were a Jewish child, they would help you, not necessarily adults. So my mother went to the organization that helped to hide children and did say, I have these, I'm sure she said, I have these two girls, could you help me? So my sister and I went into hiding. I do not, do not want you to think of hiding the way Anne Frank hid. Uh, I assume you all know what the witness protection program is. Okay, somebody want to tell me what happens in the witness protection program. Go for it. Yeah, you, you, yeah, you go to first hand myself. It's if you witness a crime yeah. or yeah. if you were involved somewhere in a crime and the government wants to protect you, yeah. they'll give you a new identity and they'll take you to like a, a different state. Very good. Exactly. And so did you know there was somebody in this room that's in the witness protection program? That person is hiding in the open. It could be your best friend. It could be the person sitting next to you. Yeah, they're all, and you know, one day I'm going to get in trouble. There's going to be somebody there, and the government is going to call me up and say, you know, how did you know? But I just want you to know, many Jewish children were hidden in the open. We were not all hidden like Anne Frank. Anne Frank, there's advantages to being hidden the way she was. Uh, I always say, uh, Sad to say, names show identity. Now, it should not be sad. And the nice thing about talking to a whole Jewish group, I could use a Jew, yeah, I could say a Jewish name. So, you know, usually I have to say from Mars or something, because you don't know who's in the audience. You don't want to insult anybody. You know, though, that your last name could, I don't know everybody's last name, could show you that you're Jewish. And if people are prejudiced, even before they meet you, the first time they hear that your name is Cohn, or even Emmanuel, I'm sure people did not vote for Ron Emmanuel, some people, because he was Jewish. No other reason. I don't know if he'll be a good mayor. I don't live in Chicago, but I'm just saying. You know, names show identity. And if people are prejudiced, first thing that happens. You know, they just make that decision. You know, I told you to go home and ask about history. I bet you you will find, some of you, not all of you, that people changed names. They had to, to get jobs, to move. So, you know, America is the best country there is, but it is not a perfect country. And there's still prejudice today. And I'm sure you see it, or you hear it. Now, I hope you don't feel it, but I'm sure you hear about it. So, since my sister and I were able to go outside in the open, uh, our first names were Mercury and Annette, very French-sounding. Belgium is a French-speaking country, no problem. My father's last name, my last name, Lederman. You know that's a Jewish last name. So since I was able to go outside, my last name was changed to the last name of the family that took us in. Now, my sister and I were lucky in our hiding experience. But, you know, luckily, again, you've studied it. Because 
I don't want to leave you. And also, you're Jewish, so you know more. You know, I don't want to leave you though, and have you say, I heard a story. It wasn't that bad. Look, one of you young people might be adopted. I'm adopted. I'll get to that later. That's very different, okay? That's an individual woman making an individual decision what's best for you and for her. My mother, of course, made a decision what's best for us. But she had to make it because there was a government out there saying, I'm going to kill you both. So it's a very different reason, okay? And I'm not saying that so that you feel sorry for me. It's just I just have to make awfully, awfully sure that you don't leave and say it wasn't that bad. My father should not have had to be killed just because he was, a Jew, he was Jewish. So... But we were lucky. Not all children were that lucky. And children were hidden all over. I just want you to know that. I know a man that was hidden in a barn, and he was never, never, never able to go outside. So, you know, there were different experiences. There were other children like me who were very fortunate, who were hidden with families that loved them. Uh, the family that took us in, had three children of their own, two boys in their early 20s and a girl 16. This, by the way, is a picture of the, fan, of the mother and daughter. There's not any pictures, by the way, of the men with my sister and me, and that's because men were either working away or the Germans took them to work and so on. And uh, this time you know which one I am, smaller and cuter. I always remember that, my poor sister. <laughs> But this is a picture of the two of us. Now, that family, as I said, loved us. Children also, by the way, were hidden in sewers. And I know, you know, even as bad as that sounds, it's better than being dead. So, uh, but it wasn't good enough to just have our last name changed. Because I'm not sure if at this age I really knew I was Jewish. But, you know, I certainly couldn't go outside and say, Hi, I'm a little Jewish girl. So we were being brought up as Catholic. Almost any child that was able to go outside to meet the public, and this is what I mean by meet the public. You go outside, hi, what's your name? This is my name. Uh, was being brought up as Catholic. Now, I know there were some that, uh, in Protestant countries, they were Protestant, but I've heard very little about that. But what I know is mainly people who are being brought up as Catholic. My sister and I went to Catholic nursery school, and we went to church every single Sunday. Yeah, I'm sure we thought we were Catholic little girls. Now, the, see, sometimes <laughs> the next thing I, I, well, I could ask you, but I don't know if you'll know the answer, uh, but we'll try it. Uh, my sister being the older of the two of us, her class was going to have its first communion. Do you know what you, you might not, you know, because you're Jewish. If you were Orthodox, I know for sure you wouldn't know, you know, but you might. Uh, do you know what you have to be besides Catholic? I know it's Christian, but anytime I say Christian, I get the answer Catholic. What you have to be to be able to take communion? You might not know. Anybody know? Uh, communion? It's a ceremony that makes you part of the church. Yeah, but what do you have to be to be able to take it? Anyone know? Catholic. Besides that. 
It is now, why are you all mental? Yeah, what? Yeah, baptized. And I'm sure you know, I'm, but you know, I'm used to, I can hear myself speak in the back of my head. You know, I'm sure you know that Jewish people are baptized. Now, I do have to make it clear that during the war, some children were baptized. And the reason I, yeah. Does everybody know what baptized oh. means? No. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I never thought of that. Thank if you. you. Were, if you were, um, if you're a fundamentalist, it actually means taking you into the river and dunking you. It comes from John the Baptist, who was one of Jesus's teachers, and it was a way of committing yourself to God in those days, because John the Baptist was Jewish. Um, today, it's a way of committing yourself to Jesus. And in the Catholic Church, they don't dunk you in the river, but they sprinkle holy water. Yeah, they water sprinkle holy water on you. And some Jewish children indeed have been baptized. As your teacher said, there's more and more hidden children. And you might in the future have a hidden child talking to you, saying that they were baptized. But my sister had not been baptized. So the local priest did not allow her to take communion. And because we all like nice, tight endings, you know, um, this little bit I'm taking from a friend's story. I have a friend who was hidden in a convent. And you know what a convent is? And I know how to explain that, but the other day when I spoke, I asked, and they all looked at me, and then there was an adult there who said, any of you ever see the sound of music? That's a convent where Maria was. Remember, she's in that convent, and then she leaves, and you know, she sings. Anyway, that, that was a nunzar. And in the olden days, okay, uh, they had schools there too. So young people, uh, say girls, because boys went to where the monks were, uh, would live in the convent and go to school there. It doesn't mean that you become a nun, it just means you'd be going to school. So. I have a friend that was hidden in a convent, and she said what the nuns would tell the children is that she had to eat first thing in the morning and therefore could not take communion because she was sick. Now, by the way, today I've been told you could eat and still take communion, but in those days you could not. And my sister was indeed a sickly child, so I'm, I'm sure that's what they said. But, you know, people aren't fools. If I had used in my example earlier about not Illinois, but I had said the northern suburbs are passing this thing, then if I, yeah, I could say to you, if I took your dog in, uh, people might very well know it came from a northern suburb. Uh, but nobody ever said anything. Now, it doesn't mean you never say anything. I have to make that very clear. You do what saves lives. In those days, if any of the people in that community had said anything, I would not be here today. But you know, if any of your young friends ever say that they're gonna harm themselves, you do, even if you promise not to say anything, you say something. They might be angry at you for a little bit, but they'll get over that. There'll be a life to be angry at you. you know, so what if they're not angry and they're dead? It doesn't matter, you know. So anyway, you do what saves life. Nobody, nobody said anything. Uh, now, for me, I was way too young. The next story I love, because I always say, 
if I had to have had this history, I'm glad this story is in it. The people I stayed with owned a cafe to which Nazi soldiers came. And I would go to the cafe and entertain the soldiers by singing and dancing for them. And they were very, very nice. They would, you'll love this. They would let me uh, take puff from their cigarettes and <laughs> drinks you know, and sips from their drinks. So here I am, this little two, three-year-old drinking and smoking. <laughs> but then I threw up, and I do neither today. <laughs> now, they didn't do that to be me. You know, it's not like they said, aha, little Jewish child, we're going to make her sick. They didn't know I was sick. <laughs> I was Jewish. Uh, the next part is really the more important part of the story. There is a saying out there that says, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words never will. It is the opposite. Forgetting that many of you have your parents here, and if I started to throw sticks and stones at you, they'd be jumping up at me. Forgetting that, forgetting that there's more of you than there is of me. If I had sticks and stones up here and threw them at you, it would hurt. I'm not denying that. That pain goes away. Unless you're my age, physical pain usually goes away, unless, heaven forbid, you have a chronic disease. But what does not go away is words. Words can heal, help, but words can also destroy. How does prejudice start? I will use Mars this time. I say to you, do you know that people from Mars are really bad people? Now. He's a young man, he figures, I don't have to listen to her. But the first time he meets somebody from Mars, as much as he tries to be an independent thinker, in the back of his mind, he's going to remember what I said. I've just made him prejudice against people from Mars. <laughs> That's how prejudice starts. Words can heal and they can hurt. I came here in 1950. I had a little American friend who I met here, and as friends do, we had a fight. Who knows about what? She said to me, you will never be an American. And it's what, 60, uh, 60 years later? I still remember that. I am willing to bet. I'm not going to do it. Don't you do it. I, but I'm willing to bet if I went around the room, started with her, because you know, that's the way I would start. Don't do it, though, honey. And I said, tell me something you remember that somebody said to you at some time, it doesn't have to be yesterday, it could be five years ago, that you still remember because it hurt you. I bet you every one of you could do it. As young as you are, I am sure you remember something somebody said that really hurt you. Be careful how you use words. Words can destroy. And I tell you that because this next story shows how stupid sometimes words can be. As I said, you know, they had this cafe, and I would go to the cafe, and I was a favorite of one of these Nazi soldiers. And I was physically closer to him than I am to any of you. And I would be sitting on his lap, and he was very, very nice to me. He would uh, let me play with the insignia on his uniform. He would bring me little toys and chocolate. And in general, very kind. You know, that's the awful thing. Not awful, but the bad person doesn't wear a sign, you know, doesn't say thief, rapist, murderer. It'd be wonderful. We'd know what to do. 
They look exactly the way you and I look. It is their actions that make all the difference. And, but as nice and kind as he was to me, as I was sitting on his lap, he would be saying the most negative and derogatory things against Jews. He would say that they were lower than vermin, that they didn't deserve to live, and the line I like best and remember where I am, he would say that he could smell a Jew 10 miles away. Mm. But isn't that what people say when they're prejudiced? Because you see, you have to have a reason. For me to say to him, and to all of you, but since you're, to say to him, people from Mars are awful. He needs, you know, hopefully his reaction will be, ha, why? So I need to give him a reason. So, but they smell. Haven't you noticed how people from Mars smell? Because you have to have a reason. You know, you can't simply say, I don't like that person. Of course, luckily he did not know that I was Jewish. Now, everybody in my story was in danger. My mother, my sister, and I, uh, through the fault, and I'm putting it in quotes, obviously, through the fault of being born Jewish. We did not choose our danger. But, you know, we were in danger anyway. It doesn't matter if you choose it or somebody puts you in danger. You have to decide what to do. So you saw, yes. Did you know you were Jewish? I'm not sure. I know people who did know, though. You did not know. I'm not sure. Let me very quickly, since you asked, tell you a story about somebody who did, who was also, by the way, hidden in Belgium with her parents. She's about, I think, five years older than I am. So she was about seven or so at the time. And um, as she says, she tells this story. It's a cute story. Cute, but not when you think of what's in back of it. She was going to school. A Catholic school, and they were singing, you know. And all of a sudden, the teacher said to her, Olga, stop singing. She got petrified. She thought somehow or other the teacher had found out she was Jewish and that Jewish children were not allowed to sing Christian songs. And that, you know, of course, she'd been reported that once the song was over, the door would open, the Gestapo would come in, take her, make her tell where her parents were. So finally it's over, she's obviously waiting in trepidation, and the teacher says to her, Olga, you were singing off key and so loudly that you're making everybody around you sing off key. <laughs> now, yeah, it's a cute story, but you know, like none of these young people should be afraid, say, if somebody, if a person of authority comes into this room, you know, or tells them, I want to see you. Maybe they did something bad, but whatever they did, does not deserve them being taken to a concentration camp, you know. And so I'm not sure I knew. And that, I think, is what really saved me. Although lots of kids did know, and they learned not to respond to that. I mean, when you think about it, they learned to respond. I mean, my first name was never changed. My sister's wasn't. But lots of kids had their first name changed. And you know how hard that is to not respond to your biological first name? I mean, it takes away your identity. You know, in those days, I know they didn't have a mall, but say you're at the mall, and, so, and let's just say Mary, because that's a common name, you know, and somebody says Mary, and you turn around and say, oh, somebody knows I'm here, because you're right away, you know, look, who said it, if that's your name? 
And to learn that if somebody says, Mary, you just keep walking and pretending nothing is going on. So no, you know. Uh, but as I say, uh, if my mother, my sister, and I had been discovered, what would have happened to us is we would have gone to a concentration camp and been gassed. Now, I, I know I make it sound like it's nothing, but you'll see why. I mean, I realize it's not. I would be here today to talk to you. If this wonderful family had been discovered, at best they would have gone to a concentration camp, and at worst they would have been killed. You know that the two men that hit Anne Frank ended up in camps, the women did not. But that organization that helped to hide my sister at me and me, if they had been discovered, they would have been tortured and then killed. And the reason I say all of that is because, you know, well, let me first ask you a question. If there's something you value and you decide to hide it, are you going to tell anyone where you hid it? No, of course not. I mean, I know it's a ridiculous question, but that's why I ask it. Uh, so, you know, everybody in my story was in danger. It wasn't even the thing. So you don't tell somebody where you hid your cell phone or your iPod or whatever. Uh, but this is even worse. This is a human being. And somehow or other, I do not know how, I have tried to find out how my mother knew where we were hidden. Uh, I belong, as I say, to an organization called the Hidden Children. And uh, there once was a conference, and the person sitting next to me who had been hidden in Poland, by the way. And uh, the, the only time I'm mentioning this is what you'll see is uh, she said uh, her mother came to visit her, and I whispered to her, and I said, how did your mother know where you were? Because yeah, I would have taken that. I would have usurped that part of her story without any doubt. And she said, I don't know. They just had ways of finding out. And so I don't know how my mother knew where we were. But very much as I said to you at the beginning that I want to yell at my father, I want to yell at my mother. I want to say to her, how could you do this? How could you put your children into hiding, into safety, and then risk their lives? And yet, since I got my little Chico, I can better understand it. You know, you said you would hide. I'm sure you would want to go see your dog, too. I assume you have a dog. You know, I'm sure. I mean, or you said, you know, or you said you'd hide it in your attic. Let me tell you, I could not hide my Chico. He barks a little sucker. But <laughs> please, you know, I already got one note from my condo. You know. But, you know, you want to see the person. And I'm sure the parents definitely understand what I'm talking about. So I can better understand what I cannot understand. And, you know, I... I I heard your teacher talking to you, so I know you've talked about rescuers and so on. Uh, what I cannot understand is that they let her come. I can understand why they hit us. I really can. They took what I say a calculated risk, and that's actually my message. Take calculated risks. But, you know, I'm not asking you to stand out in the middle of the street and just stand there and say, well, she told me to take a risk. Let's see if a car is going to hit me. I mean, that's not a calculated <laughs> risk. You know, if you see a child in the middle of the street, a puppy, my puppy, but no, and you see no cars coming, sure, try and see if you can grab it, you know. 
or maybe even you can go like this and stop the car, I don't know. But those are calculated risks. And yet they did it. And you would think I would be standing in front of you and saying I am so, so thankful they did it. But before I tell you, since as I say I want to involve you, let us assume, uh, the young one, the young people here, that your parents, and I say mothers because men mm -hmm. uh, in those days particularly, you know, were not, they were taken first if nothing else. But let us assume that your mothers put you in Hungary to save your life. And then she came to visit you. How would you react? There's no right or wrong answer, kids. Just I'm involving you. Think about it a little. How would you react? Okay, let's get her. You get more than one. Um, how could you have been Okay. I'd be happy to see her. Okay. Anybody else? Go for it. Well, because I'm how young I was, I might be a bit confused on who it was. I'd say, what's the point? What? Why? Okay. Why couldn't you text me with those? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, yeah, I, I think I'd be happy to see you. Okay, look, no right and wrong answers. You have to learn that. Sometimes emotions aren't right and wrong. Sometimes you can't act on your emotions. You know, if I want to hit him, uh, I shall say, I can't act on that emotion. You know, but I can, I, whatever I feel, I have a right to feel. Okay, everything, uh, they're all great answers, by the way. Everything I'm going to tell you right now, I know as an adult at my age is not true, but not when I was that young. Because you would think when I was that young, I would have done with kind of what he said, what some of you said together. I would have run up to her, my sister and I would have run up to her and said, oh, please, please take us home. We want to go home with you. And that would have been very painful for her. Because of course, if she could have kept us, she wouldn't have given us up, you know? But what my sister and I did was even more painful for her. It was cruel, it was nasty. And not because we were cruel and mean children. Look at us, we're sweethearts, but we were young. Look, you are all older, you have words. If somebody hurts you emotionally, and I want to tell you something, it's different from what I said earlier about how you use words. As long as you interact with people, you're going to be hurt emotionally. The only way you're never going to be hurt is if you never interact with people, and that's even worse. Whoops, my earring is falling. Oh, uh, yeah, the back is by a foot. Oh, thank you. Okay, that's even worse. And all I mean by that is, you know, unless... The person you're with wants the exact same thing you want. There's going to be times, you know, you want to stay up later, your parents say no. Right now, you heard them. That's all I mean about when you interact with people. You're not always going to get what you want. But you have words. So you could discuss it. You, know, you could say, it really hurt me when you told me I was ugly. I know, you, that, I know you're not going to say that. But yeah, I have words. We could talk about it. Why, why did you tell me that? Then you could say, well, you hurt me because you told me I was too short. I'm making up the whole, you know, and now we can discuss it. I didn't have words. It's very much like your pet. You know when your pet is angry at you. Doesn't have words, but has actions. So we were very young. All we knew is 
what this young lady said. She had abandoned us. She didn't want us. Now remember, I don't believe that today. Then I did. She didn't want us. She certainly didn't love us. You don't give up something you love, quite the opposite I know today. So what do you do? We're all human beings. And when somebody hurts us, we want to hurt them back. Not again because we're nasty. We want them to feel our pain. Now, how many, and I think young ladies or girls, women do this more than men. Yeah, the men can correct me if I'm wrong. How many times have you said to somebody, I'm so angry at you, I'm never going to talk to you again? It's not a night, yeah, I know, <laughs> we all say it. And I, I don't know why, I think girls do it more. Okay, that's exactly what I did to my mother. Instead of running up to her and you know making nice nice and telling her how much I missed her, instead made nice nice to this woman. And you know how painful that is. You know, it's bad enough if I say I'm never gonna talk to you again. But then it's even worse if in front of you I go, I'm really nice to him. And that had to have been so painful. Although she was supposed to have said, that she was happy because it showed how loved we were. But still, I feel very bad about that. Would I do it again given the same circumstances? I'm sure I would. You know, it's easy at my age to say, oh, I wouldn't, but I'm sure I would. And the reason I feel so bad about that is because my mother actually is the saddest person in my story. This is a picture of my biological mother reeling my sister. And I showed this picture. I have a picture of my mother holding me, which I'll try and get to. Uh, but this one, because it epitomizes the Holocaust so well. Because, you know, you see the star on my mother's jacket, the star being a symbol of Nazi hatred and atrocity. On my mother's face, you see all those strong, strong emotions, fear, anxiety, despair, depression. And, but of course, the love for her child and my sister is what you are, the hope and innocence of the future. So to me, this epitomizes it. Marie? Yes. Where was your mom during the time? Did you know, other people have asked me that. It's funny, somebody else asked me that recently. I wish I knew. So she was around somewhere. She was in Brussels, yeah. In Brussels, but she wasn't. Uh, and she was working, I mean... I think she was working. I've been trying to find out. Again, nobody, you she know... She wasn't in hiding, though, basically. No. She was out. She was out, away. yes. So, okay. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. No problem. Uh, anyway, she was taken on the very last transport from Belgium on July 31st, 1944. That transport reached Auschwitz on August 2nd, 1944, and she perishes in Auschwitz in December of 44, and the war is over. And not the war, Auschwitz is liberated in January of 45. That left my sister and me as orphans. But before I go to what happened to us, I want to go back to something I said way, way at the beginning. Way at the beginning, I said six million Jews were murdered. So usually I say at this point, by the way, that maybe you might be saying, whoo, wouldn't that happen to me? I can't say that to you. But what I can say is, look, it's awful that that happened. But we're not the only ones. Five million other people were murdered. And you have to remember that. 
Jehovah Witnesses, gypsies, and I know you're seventh and eighth graders. I don't usually say it to seventh, but because there's eighth graders and because it's in the news so much, so be mature, homosexuals. Anyone that was different, and you know what I usually say to people, in this case I'll say it, but it, obviously you're Jewish, I will say, nobody is asking you to be Jewish or to be a gypsy or homosexual or a Jehovah Witness. All we're asking you is to let people live. You don't want to be friendly with those groups, that's your decision. You might miss out a lot, but it's still your decision. But you've got to speak up when you see prejudice, be it against your group or any group. Because if people had spoken up against the Jews, that would not have happened. It happened because people allowed it, the, the bystanders. That's really the group that did the most damage, just stood by and did nothing. And you can't allow that. A few years ago, I spoke at an exhibit called Anne Frank in the World Today, and I asked for a copy of this picture because he was a, there were 600 mixed kids. They were of African fathers from uh, South Africa from World War I and German women, and he's one of them. And look what he is told. You will be next. And that's why you have to speak up. I mean, I know today... Uh, we, and including me, yeah, I am certainly not perfect. Today we are sacrifice of the Muslims. I know that, you know. I can't usually say that to an audience, but this audience I can. But, you know, there's some good Muslims too. You cannot lump everybody together. It's like the Nazis lumping all the Jews together. You can't do that. So you've got to speak up. You know, don't stand around when somebody says, hey, you know, I have this great joke about Mars. You want to hear it? Because you know what? It's, even though it's told in a joke, it's still prejudice. It's making fun of the Martians. And, you know, if you're, not a, if you're a coward like I am and you don't want to say no, you could simply say, listen, I just remembered I have something to do. You know, you could walk away. That you could do. Tell me next time, and I'm not as busy. But next time, if, I, if it's me, I'll have forgotten the joke already. Anyway, uh, for my sister and me, things got much, much worse after the war. And I think people forget that. You know, people, certainly for concentration camp survivors, or people that managed to survive, even though things were bad, you know, they went to DP camps, that some went home and, you know, nobody wanted them there, you know, and things like that. They at least were out of the camps. And I'm not making comparisons. I hope you understand. You know, I'm not saying uh, they were in a better position. Actually, they were to the extent that they were better than they had been. But actually, people like my sister and me and other people like me who had good hiding experiences, I'm not talking about the ones that didn't, for us it got much worse. Because, you know, at the beginning of World War II, there were 300, I mean, I'm sorry, 3 million Jewish children. At the end of World War II, a million and a half had been murdered. Only because they were Jewish. So, you know, you're the future. Children are always the future. So the Jewish people, the Jewish agency goes looking for the children 
And so my sister and I end up in a Jewish orphanage. And I have absolutely no good memories of the orphanage at all. Absolutely none. Uh, that woman, this wonderful woman, uh, when she took us there, the one thing that she asked of them from, uh, when she, we got there was for them not to cut our hair, and they promised that they would not. And the minute she left, what did they do? Yeah. yeah. And I, now they cut it. They didn't shave it, okay? Any, can any of you figure out why they cut it? Make you look different. Okay, make us look different. In Israel, by the way, the kids can figure it out right away. Yeah, go ahead. Headlights? Yeah. Uh, headlights, I guess, is very common. In it. I have a niece that lives there, and I spoke to her class once. They were like, everybody knew the answer. <laughs> yes, absolutely, headlights. Because you have to realize, children were hidden all over. And I'm, I know people, I've heard people talk who were hidden, who said, after a week, I had lice. I don't think my sister and I did. But you have to realize how traumatizing that was. You know, this woman loved us, giving us up. You now again, we're being given up, and now we're being lied to. For, anyway, I did not have any good experiences that I remember. But what happens is, as I always like to say, the one for you, dramatic, for me, traumatic experience. In 1949, the orphanage is going to Israel. Unbeknownst to my sister and me, there is a family in Chicago, no blood relation, remember I told you I was adopted, who have decided to adopt us. But the paperwork has not been completed. So we can't come. And we certainly can't stay in Belgium. The Jewish agency is paying for our stay in Belgium. They're going to pay for our stay in Israel. But they're certainly not going to pay for us to stay in Belgium. And we're, we're younger than even you young people are at that time. And you cannot go out and get a job and support yourself. So we certainly can't. And in those days, nobody thought that way anyway. And if we got to Israel, we would become wards of the state. And in those days, they would not let us leave. So we're all on the train. And you know, just for a few minutes, a few seconds, I want you to think about it, the train. You know, if I ask you, what do you feel about the train? You, first of all, you might look at me and say, what kind of question is that? Because my guess is you have no feeling. It's a very neutral object to you. It gets you from point A to point B. That's what a train does. Not to us, not to any of the children and adults on that train. You have to realize that those very same tracks had been used to take people to the camps. And children had seen that. I'm not saying I saw it. If I saw it, I don't remember, okay? But certainly there were older children also. And certainly the adults had seen it. Some of those adults had been in camps. <clears throat> so going on the train, as much as they knew they were taking this train to go to the ship, to go to Israel, was not this carefree experience and it would be for you. And so we're all on this train and in the midst of the desolate countryside, the train gets stopped. And two <coughs> uniformed Belgian policemen get aboard. And I knew instantly that they were there for my sister and me. And sure enough, they come over and they take us off. 
Now, it's not as simple as it sounds. It's not like they said, okay, come and we say, okay, bye-bye. Nice knowing you. See you again sometime. No, no, no. We were not going to go. I mean, you have to realize that this is about the, third, about the fourth or fifth group of people we've been with. And we've been with this group the longest. And so we kept saying, no, 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 we're not going. But as you know, nobody listens to children. So they took us off that train, kicking and screaming, because the family in Chicago had said that they would pay for our stay in Belgium while the rest of the paperwork went on. So we go to yet another orphanage and come here in May of 1950. And this is a picture of the people that adopted us and my sister and me. Now, I told you way at the beginning that I have a message. Uh, I recently heard about a woman who was a camp survivor who, when asked, when you meet somebody new, how do you know if they'll be your friends or not? And she said, I look into their eyes and I ask myself the question, would you have hit me? And after I heard that, I thought, this is great. I'm going to use this as my ending. And I, so then what I, would, I started to say after that was, I would say, when you get dressed in the morning, you know, you're at that mirror and you look into your eyes, what do you see? Do you, uh, you know, do you see someone that's going to be a good citizen, that's not going to bully, that's going to be there for people? And, but then I thought about that some more. And, you know, most of us think we're good people. And so when we look in our eyes in the morning, and if you do ask yourself that question, you know, am I going to be there for people? You're going to say, sure. So I want to do the same question she asked. When people look into your eyes, what do they see? Do they see that you're kind, that you're going to be there for them? You know, that you're not going to bully, that you're going to protect them if they need protection, that you're going to be good. Not perfect, but good. And that's my message to you. I want people to be able to see that, to know that you're going to stick up for the right, that you're not just going to stand by and do nothing. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.